A warning that this episode contains explicit language as well as descriptions of violence. A video camera is recording a small empty room at the headquarters for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police. The door opens and someone ushers a young black woman inside. This tape is from 2017. The woman's name is Raven Bias. She sits down in one of the swivel chairs. When the door closes and she's left alone, Raven starts looking around. She's holding a phone and quickly places a call. Hello? Hello? Yeah, I'm downtown somewhere at headquarters in the homicide wing. They want to question me because they shot, they shot Pops. The police shot Pops. Pops, we're in the homicide wing, so evidently he, that means he's dead. Pops was Raven's 63-year-old neighbor. He lived three doors down from her. Pops was black, a grandfather who had a lot of health problems. And then I was involved because I was a witness to the shooting or whatever. Like, mine got bruises from handcuffs and everything. Raven had been hanging out outside her home sometime after 8 p.m., when a caravan of SUVs and cars sped down her block with their high beams on. At first, Raven thought there was going to be a drive-by shooting. So she said she and her friends ducked into an alley next to her house. People spilled out of the cars and started shining flashlights at them. They came and kicked in the door. They kicked in my door, not the one next to me, but the one next to that. And then they kicked in Pop's door with flashbangs and everything, swat front and back. This happened in a mostly Black neighborhood in St. Louis. People described to us, and in police recordings, how it felt like their block had come under attack. We still did not know that it was the police. The only thing that indicated that it was the police were the flashlights and the M14s aimed at my fucking chest with red dots on my chest, literally. Raven had witnessed a multi-house no-knock raid. Don Clark, the man Raven called Pops, was dead. Several other neighbors were handcuffed and brought into the police station for questioning. The lives of an entire block had been upended. And we wanted to know, what was all this for? I'm Jen Abelson. And I'm Nicole Dumka. We're investigative reporters with The Washington Post. And this is Broken Doors. I know they didn't have a probable cause. Probable cause don't mean shit in Amor, Mississippi. What gets lost sometimes is the due process in that speed. A series about no-knock warrants. The controversial tactic that allows police to force their way into people's homes without warning. In the last episode, we heard the story of Joseph Richardson, an unarmed Black man who was shot in the back of the neck by police carrying out a no-knock warrant at his motel room. 
And we heard the attorney representing Joseph's family say something that we keep going back to. His name is Ron Haley, and he was talking about what police actually find in these high-risk raids. Police bust up in house, tear it up, and only come out with an amount of contraband that would amount to a possession charge. And now this person's house is torn up, they're financially in, in, in ruins, not to minimize illegal behavior, but the juice is, is not worth the squeeze many a times when you're executing these no-knock warrants. This question of whether the juice is worth the squeeze, it's at the heart of our entire investigation into no-knock warrants around the country. And it's especially relevant to the multi-house raid in St. Louis. It feels important to take a step back here because, again, no-knocks are seen by police as an essential tool, especially in the war on drugs. And they're often highly militarized operations. We don't know how many of these no-knock raids take place in any given year. Some experts estimate that there are tens of thousands of these a year. But no agency keeps track of all of them. We set out to examine deaths involving no-knock warrants approved by a judge. In 2015, the Washington Post started keeping track of fatal police shootings. So that's what we used as a starting point. Since 2015, we identified 22 people killed by police carrying out no-knock warrants. More questions surrounding the shooting death of 22-year-old Ferguson Lawrence. The grandfather, who was disabled, living with diabetes and poor eyesight, was killed with a barrage of gunfire. This is a limited look into the full number of fatalities related to no-knock raids. We couldn't get our hands on every search warrant, so we don't know for sure the full count of people who died. There are likely more. In our analysis, we also didn't include cases where officers were accused of conducting a no-knock raid, even though they only had approval for a regular search warrant. Of those 22 no-knock fatalities that we do know about, all but two of them involve searches for illegal drugs. One suspect was killed. One officer was shot twice, but he is okay. There were nine people in the house at the time, including three children, and they still haven't told us what drugs, if any, were found. We wanted to know how much police said they seized during these drug raids. So we requested evidence logs, police reports, and other documents from a lot of agencies. We eventually compiled the information from 13 fatal raids. For the other searches, authorities declined our requests or didn't quantify the drugs they recovered. Marijuana was found most often. The largest drug bust was in Fort Worth, Texas in 2018. Police said they recovered over a pound of marijuana, three pounds of mushrooms, and more than 16 pounds of a prescription allergy medication that can be used to get high. We added up all the drugs from the rest of the raids. That includes the cases we investigated in Mississippi and Louisiana. And combined, these drugs totaled less than three pounds. Mm -hmm. 
police say these kinds of raids are necessary to protect officers and preserve evidence. But our investigation into fatal no-knock warrants raises questions about how much force police use and how much they actually recover. What police recover from these high-risk, dangerous warrants that really became a bigger question when you have law enforcement raiding multiple homes at the same time. So we really wanted to dig into that here on California Avenue in St. Louis. There were three houses raided, no one was charged, and one man was dead. Police found drugs, but there was a troubling allegation about how the drugs got there. While I started looking at the police records, Nicole packed up for St. Louis, and we would later compare what I was seeing in the warrants to what people had to say in this neighborhood. I traveled there with a couple of my colleagues on the Post's audio team. Yeah, we're turning on. And we went right to California Avenue. Then your destination will be on the right. There weren't a lot of people hanging out on this block. Some houses looked abandoned, with blown-out or boarded-up windows. We stopped in front of the homes that had been raided. They're long, skinny, one-story houses, what are known as shotgun-style houses. They don't really have hallways. One room just leads into the next. They're very close to each other, the homes that were raided. Yeah, so 4023... When we were there, it was sunny, quiet, peaceful. In the light of day, it was hard to imagine what it must have looked like during the raid. But through documents, police recordings, and interviews with witnesses, I started to get a sense of what it was like on that night. On February 21st, 2017, police had three no-knock warrants to search three homes for drugs. Sometime after 8 p.m., those SUVs and cars lined the block with their high beams on. Officers dressed in black bulletproof vests and armed with guns poured out of the vehicles and first targeted two houses at the same time, 4029 and 4025 California Avenue. Going into this raid, police said they expected to find narcotics and guns. There were two SWAT teams with 17 officers. Um, We were all clad in ballistic plate carriers um, with police across the front. In an interview with police, Officer Nicholas Manasco, one of the SWAT team members, described the gear they were using in preparing for the raid. They had flashbang devices and ballistic shields and battering rams. Most of us all had um, M4 rifles, except for the breacher, and we all had um, Kevlar helmets. Other uniformed officers were on the block. Raven Bias lived at 4029 California Avenue. We heard from her at the beginning of this episode. 
and police also went after the house two doors down at 4025. That was Marlon O'Neill's home. I think I dozed off and it seemed like I wasn't asleep. Probably no more than 30, 45 minutes when I heard this, you know, big loud boom. Police didn't knock. They broke open the doors with a battering ram and they threw flashbang devices into the houses. I didn't know, I, I was, you know, when you, when you sleep like that and you hear a noise like that, you don't have an idea what it was. You don't know if something fell over, if it was a gunshot. Marlon and his girlfriend, Kenya Curry, were in the basement bedroom. Next thing you know, we hear a big boom. And Pete, I'm like, what the fuck is that? So we all, we shaking and shit, we scared. Kenya's four-year-old son was fast asleep upstairs, near Lamont McCottrell, a close family friend. He was upstairs asleep with his uncle on the couch or whatever. Lamont said he had no idea what was happening. All I remember, we going to sleep and waking up to a gun in my face. And the officer telling me, don't move. I was like, I can't move, I got a broken leg. And he snatched me up off the couch, drove me down the steps. And when we got down the steps, he put his knee in my neck and was like, don't move. I said, I can't move, my leg is broken. And he got to cussing me out and you know, and I was like, man, look, this is not necessary, where's my nephew? Cause he took my nephew off the couch. And I was like, where's my nephew? And he kept telling me to shut up. And I'm like, where's my baby, where's my baby, where's my baby? They're like, we got your baby and be quiet and just yelling at us, talking to us any kind of way. And we're like, what's going on? Police weren't required to wear body cameras at the time. So we don't know exactly what happened. I'm trying to get him off my neck and I'm trying to move my neck, but I'm facing the way that everything happened. So what are you seeing at that moment? I'm seeing the police go up there and start kicking his door. With his head on the pavement, Lamont said he saw police converge at Don's door. The neighbor everyone called Pops. There were SWAT officers lined up outside his home, ready to rush in. It was at least five of them that I can see. And um, he really didn't hear too good and couldn't see too good. We don't know what Don Clark was doing. Don usually fell asleep with the TV on. And the family believes he was sleeping unarmed. Like what happened at the other homes, police used a battering ram to force their way into his house, busting open the door. There was confusion immediately. Here's Officer Manasco again in that interview with an investigator. When he first forced the door open, that's when I believe I heard a shot. Um, It sounded muffled. Um, I thought it came from like the rear of the house. I thought maybe what I thought at the time that was someone had ran out. Officer Manasco thought he heard a muffled shot before they threw a flashbang device inside Don's home. A bright flash went off, a loud boom. Bang goes off, that's when I make, um, I cross the threshold, enter that breach point. He didn't see anyone in front of him. Um, And that's when I hear another round crack off. But he said he heard another shot and felt the wave of a bullet go by. So that's when I immediately start sweeping to my right, um, which is a corner. There was a bed. It was like a living room he was using as a bedroom, basically. When he moved to his right, he said he saw a man holding a gun. 
I either said drop it or gun, something to that effect, and then I fired um, several rounds. So Officer Manasco fired his M4 rifle, hitting Don nine times. Six eight one six. Six eight one six. Go. Need an urgent ambulance. Forty twenty three, California. Subject shot. That's there. Forty twenty three, California. Subject shot. Twenty forty one. I'll get you further when I know. Don was later declared dead at a hospital. So we have this chaotic scene in a neighborhood where a 63-year-old man was shot dead. A child was whisked out of a home. And people are waking up and getting guns pointed at them. Three broken doors, three ransacked homes. And again, we wanted to know, what was it all for? Officer Manasco, in that police interview, acknowledged that doing these multiple no-knock raids was going to be risky. Just based on the fact that um, there were going to be some guns located, supposedly located in each um, residence, as well as the fact that we were um, compromising ourselves by doing the first two search warrants simultaneously and then heading to the third. So if there was somebody in 4023, he knows that we're there. So given how compromising he thought it seemed, we wanted to know what led police to carry out three no-knock warrants at the same time. What kind of evidence led them to use this kind of force, especially for a 63-year-old grandfather like Don Clark? I went back through the search warrants and affidavits with Jen. The affidavits are where police are supposed to lay out all the reasons why they need a search warrant and specifically, why they need a no-knock. In this case, police simply repeated the same information for all three houses on all three warrants. So, for example, on the affidavit for the house where Raven was staying at, 4029 California Avenue, it said, quote, individuals would regularly retrieve narcotics or firearms from these residences and bring them outside onto the block where narcotics would be distributed. Then, it said that exact thing again on the second affidavit. And the third, it was the identical document again and again. The only thing different was the address on the warrant. The surveillance also included details such as, quote, there was routinely a large number of people out on the block, particularly during warmer weather. There was also, quote, a lot of foot and vehicle traffic coming and going from the block. A detective said he conducted periodic surveillance of the neighborhood. In the affidavit, he described six separate weeks that he checked out this stretch of California Avenue. But Don's house was only mentioned once in those descriptions. 
The affidavit said during a week in January, quote, individuals would approach the residences at 4023 California, 4025 California, and 4029 California and enter inside for a brief period of time, five to 10 minutes, then exit. And the affidavit never mentioned one of Don's most frequent visitors, his youngest daughter, who was eight years old at the time. The investigation also relied on confidential sources and informants. But there was no controlled drug buy at any of the homes on the warrants. That is, police didn't send anyone into any of the three homes with marked money, according to the affidavit. And police initially only asked for warrants for Don's neighbors. According to the records, they only added Don's home two days later. When they did finally ask for a warrant, Police in the affidavit mentioned Don had been arrested for five crimes. It's really hard to find public records for every time a person gets arrested, especially if they haven't been charged. But when we looked, we couldn't find any record of any charges or convictions. In fact, it looked like Don had no history of run-ins with the police of any kind, except for a case related to a traffic violation from 1986. That's according to the records available to us. Don's family requested his full criminal history from police, which showed something similar. No arrests, no charges, no convictions. And the city wouldn't give us details on the arrests listed in the affidavit. They cited a lawsuit that Don's family filed against the city last summer. We tried to interview everyone we could find who knew Don. His neighbors, his landlord, his relatives, even his home health aide. We also listened to the police interviews of witnesses they talked to the night of the raid. It all painted a much different picture than what the warrant suggested. Hi, thank you so much for uh, coming. You talked yeah. on the phone. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm Nicole. How you nice doing? to meet you, Don. How you doing? I met Don Clark Jr. when I visited St. Louis. Normally when I come visit my dad, you know, you could see the things. I mean, he would always just tell me, just be careful, you know, when I come in, make sure the door's locked. And I would come in and visit him often, help him out with, you know, his laundry, help him out with the trash, make sure the, uh, certain things is clean for him. He took his meds, he'd get something to eat, and take him to the grocery store, take him to his doctor's appointment. He said his dad had lived in the house on California Avenue for several years. It was affordable and near family friends. Don Sr. gave his eight-year-old daughter the only bedroom while he slept in the living room. That's the first room you enter after opening the front door. You know, he was real outgoing. Uh, He would uh, be open to trying new things, you know, going to see different things. And um, he was very laid back. Don Jr. says his dad enjoyed having cookouts and that he loved to sing. This is the only tape of Don Sr. that his family could find for us. It's from an old video of Don's karaoke skills as he joked around with his friends during a party. Uh, all the old ones, the uh, Temptations, the Delphonies, the Dramatics, you know, all, he was, you know, like I said, he was an older guy, you know. He, lo- he loved the old stuff. 
Like we mentioned, police noted people going in and out of his house quickly and described the foot and vehicle traffic as, quote, consistent with narcotic trafficking activity. But residents who actually lived on the block, like Josh Milligan, said that wasn't true. Yeah, no, and I never really saw anybody go in and out super uh, quick or anything, right? Like, nobody walking in like they were picking up drugs and then going right back out, right? Josh was the only white man in this stretch of houses, and he lived two doors down from Don. When the police raided the three homes that night, they skipped Josh's. I get on the on that floor. Slow, sit right in the middle, actually. Right here? Yeah. I'm gonna take these cuffs off from now. Bye, bro. First, I wanna get your name. Ben Bias. Make sure I got everything correctly. Could you spell your last name? B-Y-A-S. Ben Bias, Raven's dad, lived in one of the other houses raided that night. And he echoed what Josh said. This is what he told police that night. Is it a lot of foot traffic coming and going from the house? Not really, no. Not Pop's house, no. Ben says he got to know Don over the years. He's a good guy, man. Tell me what's wrong, man. Dude got PTSD just like I do. He was scared, man. I'm telling you, man, this shit over there is fucking ridiculous. People who saw Don regularly said he was in poor health. He walked with a cane, according to his home health aide, Kathy Hazelwood. He couldn't have outran anything. A butterfly. He couldn't have outran a butterfly. You know, we talked to her at a restaurant while we were in St. Louis. I don't know if he could see from here to the door. I mean, he was just, you know, he didn't have very good sight. His hearing was terrible. What ailments was he dealing with? Like, what medical conditions? Oh my gosh, everything. Um, he was arthritic. Um, his knees were shot, his back was shot, his shoulder was shot. He was falling apart. His medical records also show that he suffered from hypertension and diabetes. Don's landlord, Bob Merbaha, owned all three of the houses raided by police. He was one of several people we talked to who suspected drugs were sold on that block, but not by Don. And he questioned why police had to shoot the man he called Pops. There would be no reason for anybody to shoot Pops that I know of, unless he has some secret life or something. Why do you say that? Everyone liked him. Everyone knew him. He was very... Uh, uh, unobtrusive. He he uh, kept to himself. Um, I've been in his house. I haven't seen anything. He had his doctor's appointments and and uh, his son visiting him and you know sometimes his daughter. Uh, yeah, I mean, what is your impression of what happened to Don Clark? I mean, to sum it up, they shot the wrong person. <laughs> There's no reason to shoot John. After the break, what police say they found during the raids on California Avenue. And what happened when we started asking questions.
Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This stretch of houses on California Avenue looked very different when I visited. Dawn's house was vacant. There's an empty lot where the Bias house stood. It burned down several years ago. The house Marlon O'Neill lived in for more than 15 years was still there. Marlon told us he moved out immediately after the raids. I moved out of this house the very next day. Actually, the night it happened, I came and locked the, you know, locked the house up, screwed screws in the doors, make sure it was secure, and I left and went to Kenya's house. Never came back since then. We asked Marlon to come back to California Avenue to talk about that night and Don's death. Don and Marlon were very close. He has children with Don's daughter and thought of him like a father. We showed Marlon a copy of the search warrant. Police had cited his criminal history, including felony convictions, The affidavit didn't include dates, but we discovered the unlawful possession of a firearm conviction was from 2010. And other charges were decades old. Have you ever seen this warrant? Uh, The one you just showed me? Yeah. No. This one has, do you want to read what it says? He was still in disbelief about it all. He didn't think there was any reason for police to raid those homes that night. A lot of the stuff that's in here... It was many years ago, many years ago. What does it feel like knowing that they brought that up here in this affidavit? All that stuff happened back in the 90s. And yes, I was a lot younger, you know, some stuff like, I ain't no angel. I've been in trouble before, you know, so I'm not saying that. But, uh, I mean, you got to dig back 15 to 20, 25 years to do a no-knock warrant to come in. Is that all you got? You know, it wasn't nothing previous, you know. Nothing at all. Marlon was never arrested or charged with any crime from the raid. And as I sat there on Don's old porch, I thought about our conversation with attorney Ron Haley. Was the juice worth the squeeze? What did police actually find? According to the warrant return, police say they found a single cartridge of ammunition. Police didn't find any drugs in Marlon's house. I can't say that uh, it wasn't a lot of traffic here or a uh, few people out here smoking or selling weed or whatever they might have been doing, but was it done here? That's the question to be asked. How much of it was found here? You did all this search warrant and that's, that's all you found in this house. What about my house? What'd you find there? You know, you find any guns in there? You find any dope in there? You know, was anything stolen? You know, not nothing. Kenya, who was staying with Marlon that night, said police took about $1,000 in cash from his house. She said it was tip money she'd saved from working at Steak and Shake. She mentioned the money in a safe to police. But the warrant return didn't list any cash. Officers said they found a small amount of drugs at the house where Ben Bias lived. That's 4029 California Avenue. Ben was actually on probation at the time after pleading guilty in 2014 
to possession with intent to distribute drugs. And on the night of the raid, Ben admitted to an investigator that he had drugs in his home. What kind of stuff do you think they're going to find? Uh, drugs, that's about it. What, what kind of drugs? Um, I'm a heroin and cocaine addict. Okay. Is that for personal use? Do you sell that to make ends meet? No, I just pretty much use. Pretty much use? Yeah, I just got a lot of friends come back, but that's, that's it, man. According to the warrant return, police seized plastic bags that had 0.1 grams of fentanyl and 0.08 grams of heroin and fentanyl. And there was a plastic bag containing some unknown white powder. We don't know what it was, but when we talked to Ben Bias's wife, Stephanie, she said she thought it may have been lactose or powdered milk. She told me that it can be used to cut heroin. And one of the lab tests identified a substance as lactose. When it came to Don, Ben also told the detective that night that he didn't think Don was involved with drugs. Does, does Pops use drugs? Uh, no. He's sick. He's sick? He's real sick. Well, he, yeah, he's real sick. With what? Um, he had hypertension real bad. Uh, I don't think he had diabetes because, you know, his Officers arrested Ben, but charges were never brought against him. After police questioned Ben, Stephanie said they sent him home. When I reached her over the phone, she told me Ben was in jail for something unrelated to this case. So we didn't get to talk to him. So Ben admitted he had drugs in his home and that he didn't think Don had any. This raises a lot of questions about how police said they ended up finding very little at Ben's house and the largest stash of drugs at Don's. According to the warrant return, police found two guns at Don's house, a 45 Glock handgun and a 9mm handgun, along with some boxes of ammunition. A crime lab said that a bullet from the scene had been fired from one of those guns. By the way, Missouri doesn't require a permit to carry a handgun. Police also said they found some drugs, 8.39 grams of heroin, 0.5 grams of marijuana, And they also found 20 pills. A lab test said one was hydrocodone. Hydrocodone is a prescription pain pill. Don's family has disputed what police said they seized. As you've heard, so many of Don's neighbors and the people closest to him found the idea that he had illegal narcotics totally absurd. The question of how these drugs got into Don's house is a key part of the lawsuit by Don's family. They said he had no drugs in his house. The lawsuit claims Detective Thomas Strode was seen, quote, carrying a box from one of the other homes into Don's house. He was the detective who requested the no-knock warrants. When I was in St. Louis, I asked Marlon's girlfriend, Kenya, about what happened the night of the raid. She told us about a shoebox, like what's mentioned in the lawsuit. Don't, why y'all bringing other stuff from another house to this house? Do you remember what the box looked like? Can you describe I, it, it? it was a Nike shoebox, a, a red Nike shoebox. They never t- gave us no explanation. They brought some stuff from his house to this house. And when we see, I'm like, why is y'all bringing stuff from this house to that house? Y'all supposed to take that to y'all car. Whoever controls the scene controls the narrative. Here's the family's attorney, Gerald Christmas. Immediately, they knew that once they went into Don's house, 
they had killed him. You cannot ask for these type of search warrants, go in a man's house who is a senior citizen and kill him and come back out and say, we didn't find anything. That was not going to fly. You know that was not going to fly. When it comes to investigating raids, it's important to look at all of the people involved in obtaining and executing the no-knock warrant. That means not just looking at the officer who shot Don Clark, but also the man who planned and oversaw the raid. Detective Strode was the one who got the search warrants, and he's the one accused in the lawsuit of bringing the box into Don's home. He worked for the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department and focused on narcotics. We set out to look through all of the search warrants that Detective Strode requested from judges. We did an analysis of records obtained by Arch City Defenders, a legal advocacy group that is helping to represent Don's family in a lawsuit against the police. In the end, we had access to thousands of search warrants and were able to identify those requested by Detective Strode over a period of three years. Here's what we found. He requested search warrants for at least 43 houses from 2016 through 2018. They were all no-knock warrants. This includes the houses on California Avenue. And there were a lot of other multi-house raids in the mix. These were drug searches. And if you look at what they found in these raids, police failed to turn up any drugs in nearly half of them. We tried to reach Detective Strode for comment and dropped off a letter at his home. He never got back to us. We also tried reaching out to the judge who signed off on all three warrants for the raids on California Avenue, Judge Barbara Peebles. A court spokesman said the judge determined there was probable cause, quote, based on the information presented under oath. The judge declined to comment further. We asked the city about the allegations in the family's lawsuit and many other questions, but they declined to answer because of the pending case. The lawsuit names the city and officers who were involved in the raid, including Detective Strode and Officer Manasco. The city of St. Louis has tried to get the lawsuit dismissed and called accusations that Detective Strode lied on the warrant, quote, threadbare, factually unsupported allegations. Detective Strode left the department in 2020. Officer Manasco left last year. The St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department wouldn't discuss why. The department is still conducting its own internal investigation into what happened that night in 2017, more than five years after police killed Don. How's everybody doing? I'm Don Clark Jr. And I'm here to tell the story of how uh, the police took our father away from us without any warning or without any justification. You know, as the family hurt and we try to gather our thoughts of how to go forward with this. So basically we fighting for you all that's in this room today. So no one can take any of you all's loved ones and the ones who loved ones that they already have taken. We are fighting for you to get justice for you also. Our family is hurt now and we just don't want this to ever happen to anyone again. We want accountability. We want 
just to feel a little relief that our dad didn't leave her in vain. I was at a press conference last summer where Don Jr. and his siblings had gathered people at a local community center so that they could talk about their dad and what it felt like after his death. Don Jr. was at his father's house just hours after the raid. There was nothing unturned, nothing that was on the floor, nothing, even the food was opened up. It was just like somebody just came through there and just... A tornado just ramshacked and tore up the house. Don's family described him as collateral damage in this war on drugs. Multiple people said Don was guilty simply of living in a poor Black neighborhood. What happens during no-knocks reflects the larger reality in our country. These no-knocks often occur in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. Again, we found that at least 22 people were killed by police carrying out no-knock warrants since 2015. 13 of those victims were Black or Hispanic. Like we mentioned earlier, police did not find enormous stashes of illegal drugs during the vast majority of these fatal raids. In all but two of them, police claim they encountered someone who had a weapon. In most cases, a gun. When we brought these findings to experts, they thought it was important to put it into context. You know, 22 people out of how many thousands and thousands of warrants are we speaking about? So I'm going to suspect, statistically, that number is very, very, very small. Having said that, It's to our position that no amount of drugs seized is worth a human life. Thor Eels is a former SWAT team leader. He's now the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. But I will say to you, Nicole, that um, nobody should be losing their lives over any amount of drugs. But please keep in mind, Law enforcement does not control another individual's behavior. And yeah, I mean, what is your response when, if you hear about an officer who deploys this regularly through narcotics raids, saying that it makes things safer, um, what is your response to that? Well, I have a um, probably an unprofessional response to that, which is usually that you know, this is an individual that is confusing good luck with good tactics. Just because it ends well doesn't mean that we did well. Thor's point was something echoed by the survivors of no-knock raids. In our investigation, we mostly focused on the worst possible outcomes of these warrants, cases where people were killed. So we just scratched the surface on the fallout. We don't have a tally of those who have been injured or traumatized. They're saying, you know, we are, we're still doing hundreds of these, and we've done hundreds of these, and nothing has gone wrong. So therefore, they must be safe. Well, I say, I think you've been very fortunate, and I'll hope that you continue to enjoy good fortune. But our position is, it's not the safest based upon pre-planning. 
On California Avenue, police were able to execute one of their most aggressive and intrusive tactics, a multi-house no-knock raid based on identical affidavits, tips from unnamed sources, and no controlled drug buy at these homes. They broke open the doors of three houses. They said they found drugs in two of them. No one was charged, and Don Clark was dead. And I've been angry ever since because I feel like I was robbed of, I just feel robbed. Um, I feel like um, my family was robbed. I feel like um, I just had a, a, a newborn child feel like she was robbed of knowing, you know, her grandfather and he was a good man. This is Ashley Clark, one of Don's daughters. As I watched Don's family talk through tears at the press conference last summer, I couldn't help but think about all the other families whose loved ones were killed in no-knock raids. For them, none of what the police found was worth losing their fathers, their partners, their children. I just always think about the last time I, I spoke with them and he was talking about we need to take more pictures together. And I was like, oh, you know, okay. I kind of brushed it off and, you know, I felt like I should have, you know, I wish I would have got that time to spend with him. So I think at the end of the day, the end game here is that we want justice because we don't want other families to go through this. We don't want people to feel robbed. We don't, we don't want people to feel this pain. Next time on Broken Doors. From the war on drugs to Breonna Taylor and Amir Locke, how did we end up here? And what does the future for no-knock warrants look like? It was such a simple issue. Break down the door and preserve the evidence. I'm embarrassed to think that I was an advocate of that. I'm Nicole Dunka. And I'm Jen Abelson. This episode was produced by Lena Mohammed and Rena Flores. Additional reporting by Nate Jones, Hannah Thacker, Alice Kreitz, Jennifer Jenkins, Ted Melnick, Julie Tate, and contributors from Northwestern University's Medill Investigative Lab and the American University Washington Post Practicum Program. Our editors are Renita Jablonski and David Vallis. Additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Copy editing by Laura Mahilski and Jordan Melendrez. Courtney Kahn is our project's editor. This show is also produced by Sabby Robinson. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. Logo design by Caddy Huertas. We spoke with more than 100 sources over the course of our reporting, traveled to communities across the country, and spent the last year requesting and reviewing thousands of documents. Investigative podcasts like this wouldn't be possible without the people who subscribe to The Post. We have a special deal right now where you can get four weeks free if you become a subscriber today. 
Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors and click subscribe now to support our work. If you want to share your own experience with No Knocks or let us know anything else, please send an email to brokendoors at washpost.com. You can listen to the show ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus content by subscribing to the Washington Post channel on Apple Podcasts.